Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Andrew Scheer, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, joins us. Mr. Scheer, thank you for taking the time. How are you? Good afternoon. Always great to chat with you. Uh, Let let me start out by asking you this question. Uh, Mr. Trudeau today announced the $250 million for virtual access to mental health services. And uh, Mr. Trudeau's out uh, for these solo news conferences every day. Do you find, uh, are you disturbed at all by that? Are you okay with him being out there every day by himself incrementally announcing these these changes? Or would you like to see a different format? Well, I'd like to see policy announced in the House of Commons where Canadians have elected representatives to debate and analyze and ultimately decide on what should be done. Uh, the Constitution allows for Canadians to be, not just allows for it, 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 it obliges Canadians to have uh, policy matters determined in the House of Commons where the opposition parties are uh, empowered to put the government through rigorous analysis. And having a very controlled environment where all he has to do is face uh, questions from his friends in the media uh, is not the same as as that parliamentary accountability. Uh, So that's why we push so hard to have Parliament to continue to sit. Uh, Even with this pandemic, we proposed uh, a way for Parliament to sit with reduced numbers uh, to provide Canadians with the oversight on the government that that we need to have in order to have a well-functioning democratic society. You know, particularly given the fact that we have a minority government and uh, your party, the Conservative Party, wound up with more of the popular vote than the Liberals. They had the lowest popular vote in the history of Canada for any party that won an election, 31%. Uh, given that, uh, how much communication do you have with uh, with Mr. Trudeau? Does he consult you on issues and matters or not? No, it's, it's, it's very much a one, it's mostly a one-way street. You know, uh, we've gotten uh, uh, some heads up, some, some early uh, advance notice on a couple of uh, items. But unfortunately, you know, despite calling for a Team Canada approach, we haven't really seen the, uh, the, the regular updates and the, and the dynamic conversations. We, we point out flaws in their legislation or gaps in their programs. And it often takes weeks to get them to address it. And uh, uh, so, you know, we're trying to urge the, the Liberal ministers, particularly finance and, and health, to have more of a dynamic uh, relationship with our MPs so that we can get these programs right the first time. I'll, I'll point out the wage subsidy that was originally introduced at 10%. We immediately pointed out and said, that, you know, most businesses have seen a catastrophic drop in income and if you want to keep people working and allow them to continue having a paycheck you're going to need more than just the 10 percent uh support here so after a few weeks of pressure we did see that raise to 75 so uh, we are going to continue to to use the role we have in parliament to to get better policies for canadians so your thoughts please mr Shear, on uh, what mr trudeau revealed on friday and that is the firearms ban some 1,500 models of firearms and their variants, and his argument, and the public safety minister, Bill Blair, the former chief of police in Toronto, their argument is that these uh, guns that they banned, the firearms they banned, are are made solely for military use to kill humans on the battlefield. I, I know you're, you're not approving of uh, of Mr. Trudeau's uh, move, and uh, and he's not communicating much with you, so... 
what would you say to him if he was standing in front of you right now and the issue came up? Well, it's extremely frustrating. It's it's completely unacceptable to make major policy announcements when the House of Commons is not sitting. You know, he's effectively sidelined Parliament, and uh, in this time, in this crisis, when everyone is focused on uh, the uh, health pandemic, uh, we believe this is completely inappropriate to use uh, this to his advantage to to make these types of changes, uh, coming on the heels of a very emotional uh, tragedy in Nova Scotia again. You know very extremely inappropriate the fact of the matter is uh that we know that these types of symbolic um uh, symbolism over substance types of policy announcements don't actually make our community safer uh just picture what what's going to happen now you've got hundreds of thousands of law-abiding firearms owners across the country who will now dutifully follow the law and and hand in their firearms or, or comply with whatever orders are given the guy who is selling cocaine in Toronto or Vancouver, the guy who is smuggling guns in across uh, the border, is not going to give a rip about which list, which firearm is on now. And uh, it's completely ineffective, and it's, it, I, I, he's not willing to do the tough work, which is actually bringing in programs and measures and legislation that go after the repeat offenders, the drug traffickers, and the gun smugglers. That's what the Conservative Party is calling for in order to make our community safer. Now, let, let me ask you about the Liberals and how they're handling the health security, let's call it that, the health security of Canadians. Uh, from the very beginning, when we first began, be, you know, became aware that what was coming out of China was more than an epidemic, and the World Health Organization waited a long time until uh, de- declared it a pandemic. Uh, how do you assess, if you go back to that time in January and bring it forward to today, how do you assess the performance of, of Mr. Trudeau and his, and his government? Uh, very poor. They have done a very poor job of keeping Canadians safe. Uh, their delays and missteps early on literally put people's lives at risk. Uh, remember, the federal health minister was defending the decision not to close borders, even as other countries around the world had brought in uh, travel restrictions on flights to and from China, uh, Italy, Iran... This government refused to do so. In fact, they accused those people who were calling for tougher, for, 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 for tighter border measures, they were calling people who, who had that view racist. And even last week, the Liberal Health Minister was defending that position, even though everyone realizes that we missed an opportunity to limit the, the spread. So, uh, again, you know, we, we've seen this government put so much of their dependency on the WHO, which we know now has flawed and faulty data coming out of China, uh, ignoring health experts here, ignoring military intelligence experts who are warning Canadian lawmakers to act sooner and more swiftly. Uh, they ignored all those voices and just you know, dutifully followed the, the, the WHO, even after concerns about the data coming out of China were raised. So they have completely uh, missed opportunities here to protect Canadians and bafflingly still continue to defend uh, China's uh, transparency and, and vouching for the government of China and the PRC, which is just, just makes no sense to me. Well, particularly after we heard Sam Cooper and read and, and watched Sam's report uh, on China, uh, amassing 2.5 billion pieces of emergency equipment, PPE equipment, over a six-week period, and, uh, you know, to the detriment of the rest of the world. So Sam's report is just incredible. What would you have done differently? Well, uh, 
as soon as the, as soon as the Canadian military intelligence reporter came across my desk saying this is happening, I would have brought in travel restrictions much earlier. I would not have allowed my health minister to dump millions of pieces of personal protective equipment from our stockpile, just literally throwing them in the dumpster. I certainly would not have sent uh, hundreds of thousands of pieces of equipment to China after it was already uh, known that this coronavirus was likely going to become a global pandemic. Uh, so those are those types of early decisions that, that uh, I know for a fact we would have done differently had we formed the government after this uh, past election. All right, Mr. Shear, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Have a good afternoon. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to chat. Yeah, Andrew Shear, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. There's a column in the Washington Post that caught my attention. Growing up in Iraq, I longed for a life without lockdowns. Now the world has become Baghdad. And uh, the author of the piece is Mustafa Salim. He's from Baghdad. He's also the Washington Post Baghdad correspondent. And the column really was about how he as a teenager lived under lockdown as U.S. forces battled insurgents in uh, Baghdad and Iraq. And then about how sweet life became when uh, the lockdown ended. And now Salim is back under the pandemic lockdown. He makes some very interesting points about that. Salim, thank you very much for taking the time evening for you in Baghdad. How are you doing? Good evening, sir. How are you? Well, I'm, doing I'm well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So I'm doing very well. What is the uh, pandemic lockdown like in Baghdad? What can you do and what can you not do? Uh, at the beginning, people did not take it seriously, actually, because as I mentioned, for them, the term lockdown is always related to violence in the streets. And now the security situation in Baghdad is pretty good at the moment. So people couldn't just think that this term, lockdown, can apply in Baghdad. Uh, they didn't uh, obey the curfew at the beginning. Shops were still open. Uh, people are going out. Uh, but then, day, day by day, the streets felt quiet because they were, uh, the authorities have imposed, imposed fines and arrests for those who are breaking the curfew. Now... They just went to the markets. They knew what to, what to get because they've been, they've been with this before. I mean, as pandemic since '03, we have been like with limited movement in Baghdad or Iraq in general because of the violence was taken out of the streets. And also, we had lockdowns like sometimes also like for a week or for for a month. And then for like 12 years, the lockdown was always in from midnight until morning. So for 12 years, for 12 years, you were under midnight to morning lockdown. That's right. And before it, it was full lockdown, since or three, before that. I mean, there has been times that we couldn't even uh, leave the area of the house because of the uh, security situation. Because the bullets were flying, right? Sorry? The violence. You, you couldn't leave the house because of the violence that was around you. Yeah. How old were you then? Like when the O3 incident happened, like the American invasion, I, I was uh, 12 years old. Oh, boy. And so for from age of 12 until 23, you lived with one kind of a lockdown or another. Uh, look, uh, as I mentioned at the article, like for the whole teenage life, right. uh, I, I, I didn't have a normal one. I, did, I couldn't stay out late. Uh, I, like, I remember like sometimes when we were like, uh, like hanging out with friends, like I was all like, 
20 or something, uh, we always set up that we call the night off by 10 p.m. Because we will calculate the hour that we will need with the traffic, with the roadblocks, and it will be at least two hours for each one, each one of us to reach home before 12. Otherwise, you will get in, in trouble. I remember many, many times I was speeding so fast, even above the limit, so that I can pass the last checkpoint before before midnight. It has been the routine of my life, actually, since I was 12 until I, I was like 23. And here we are with a global pandemic and a lockdown in many countries, most countries, uh, including uh, Iraq. And uh, you write, and I found this really quite fascinating, and it tells a lot about what you experienced, your overall experience. You write that experiencing this pandemic lockdown is almost comforting because you're experiencing a reality with the rest of the world for once. Uh, that's what we mean. As I said, we got used to the situation, but it has been always exceptional only for Iraqis. It's the first time that we are like feeling we are we are part of the world again. I mean, we are going through something that the whole world is going through. It's not only exceptional for us. Uh, but before, it, it was only for us. I remember even each night when I was like 13 years old or 14 years old, whenever my dad got to sleep, he would take his gun next to him because sometimes they were attacking houses. It's like to protect his family. He even taught me how to use it when I was 14, just in case he's not home. This is the kind of situation I grew up into, but it was exceptional only for Iraq. And like as I mentioned, when I was like watching movies, uh, I, I was seeing what normal life is. Like people can go out and have fun and party until like three or four a.m. Uh, people don't have to put their guns next to them when they go to sleep. All these kind of details. Uh, I, I thought, I had the idea that the normal life is what I'm seeing on TV, living just like those people who are living overseas, that the only access I can get into the details of the routine of their lives was by the movie. Now it's 2020, suddenly we and them are living in the same conditions, in the same situation. Like, at the same time, I'm sitting home because it's lockdown. I'm just watching Netflix, which is the same thing that any uh, person from any part of the world uh, is doing at the moment. It's like, finally, we have something in common. You know, if you could see me on, uh, if we had a camera, you'd see me shaking my head because I'm just trying to, I'm thinking about what you experienced as a 12-year-old and then being handed a firearm by your father at 14 to protect the family if necessary and your lockdown, and now this pandemic lockdown makes you feel like you're part of the world for once, as opposed to just being uh, an Iraqi uh, uh, experience only. You're actually in, it takes a pandemic for you to feel like you're part of the rest of the world. How are uh, how are Iraqis, um, how are the people of Baghdad dealing with the, with the pandemic generally and the lockdown generally? Uh, as I said, I mean, for them, the lockdown always linked to a security situation, which doesn't, which is, doesn't apply uh, apply here. So people are still going out, but and for like limited areas, just to get groceries and stuff. But they are not going out because they are like, taking this lockdown seriously. They are not going out because now there are strict laws arresting anyone who who goes out. But at the beginning, when they were preparing for the lockdown, I mean, I had friends who are living in the U.S. or Europe or even Canada, they said, like, 
they are getting every single thing from the market. They have emptied all the markets. While here, no, they didn't even care. They just went and bought the exact daily stuff, but with large, with large amounts for, for a while. But like they knew exactly what to get. They knew exactly what will they what will they need. They knew exactly what will they miss because it's not their first time. They have done this routine before. They have done and shopped lots of times preparing for a similar lifestyle. So we in our country, in this case Canada, or particularly if we say North America, where you know we have uh, an abundance of, of of everything essentially, uh, we are learning to live. Uh, in the manner in which, which was normal for you in, in Baghdad and Iraq. So when you went to the store, you knew exactly, as you said, what you needed. Uh, we in Canada, when the pandemic first hit, people were going and buying, you know, 600 rolls of toilet paper. No, we didn't do that. We know exactly <laughs> what to get. And that's yeah. why even, like, even the prices out, uh, outside, they, they, never, they were never increased. Because it's, it's not a new thing. It's a routine. Like, people are buying these stuff. Just like, even, like, whenever there is an election being held up, held up there is a curfew sometimes for, like, a few days. Whenever a big event is in Baghdad, like, an international event for security situation, for preparing, also they put impose a lockdown for a week. So, for us, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's just a routine. Like, we, we, like we are part of, a part of daily life. Like, we are shopping something we already shopped before, which we did. Right, right. Uh, one more question for you. How badly is this pandemic, this coronavirus, this COVID-19, uh, affecting uh, Baghdad and the people of Iraq? What are, your, what are your numbers like? Are you losing a lot of people? No, actually, for, uh, like, actually for a surprise, it's a surprise thing. We, we, we thought that when the pandemic was spread very high in Iran, which, which is located right next to Iraq, right. and with the same conditions i mean it's uh, it's mainly the the gatherings and like people of iraq and iran mostly gathering stuff is for religious purposes around the their shrines their holy shrines and we had also like some religious occasion here in iraq for the shia muslims where they insisted on doing their rituals and they have gathered even though the security forces and the government told them not to but they have gathered to conduct their religious ceremonies and we thought that it would be really bad. I mean, it's, it's not good, but comparing to other countries, comparing to U.S. or U.K. Or, or Europe, we're going very well. I mean, so far, the uh, death is only 97. And uh, the cases are around 2,000 only. Well, you, you deserve, uh, I mean, those are big numbers, and they're very concerning still. Um, every life is precious. They are big numbers, but as I said, it's, uh, no, but, it's nothing compared But to not like ours. Yeah, not like ours at all. Uh, but you deserve a bit of a, a break in life. And uh, I, I thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's, it's, what I'm going to take away from my conversation with you is that it took a pandemic and an international lockdown to make you feel like you were part of the world community. Salim, thank you so much. Be careful and, uh, and take good care. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great talking to you. Bye-bye. Mustafa Salim, he's the correspondent for The Washington Post in Baghdad. After killing three children and their grandfather while driving drunk, almost three times the legal limit, Marco Muzzo is granted day parole after serving less than half of his 10-year prison sentence. 
Jennifer Neville Lake, who lost her father and three children to uh, Mr. Muzo, was almost barred from attending the uh, parole hearing. Sherry Arsenault knows all about the the heartbreak of what uh, drunk drivers create. Her son and two of his friends were killed when a drunk driver, again three times, the legal limit, uh, T-boned their small car with his truck in Alberta. And uh, Sherry has been fighting for proper justice and proper legislation for impaired driving and the mayhem that is caused for for years. Sherry, uh, thank you for coming back on the show. You worked so hard on this. No surprise to you the day parole was granted? Oh, yeah. Thank you, Roy. Yeah, absolutely no surprise. When I I followed, um, well, first I have to acknowledge uh, the immense heartache the Novell Lake family has endured. I know it all too well, and um, every day is a struggle to put one foot in front of the other, and, and I just I just want to tell them I think of them every day. But uh, I've followed this case very close because I've been fighting in Ottawa for well over six, seven years now. It mirrored, it mirrored my case to the T. In fact, the decision was word for word. There's a lot of copy and pasting going on by the parole board. And um, the fact that it is legislated that they can even apply for day parole and, and full parole after, you know, just over one-sixth of a sentence is heartbreaking to all families. It, it re-victimizes us all over again. Do you expect that full parole is going to follow now? Absolutely. Absolutely, it will. Um, You know, from my understanding, he behaved while in minimum security. And I will mention minimum security is quite dorm-like. Barbecues, uh, visits from family. It's, it's It's not what people imagine he should be doing while incarcerated. Uh, you know, all you have to do is behave, and it's pretty. You have to be pretty bad to 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 be what considered not behaving. And right, uh, right. He has. Uh, he's always taken responsibility, accepted responsibility for what he's done. Uh, from what I recall, you telling me, the individual who killed your son and your two friends uh, hadn't at the time. The last time we spoke, has he in the interim? No, he never did. Uh, he was denied the full parole. It was about a year ago, and it was so close to his statutory release that uh, he just said, I guess he figured I'll just wait till my statutory release. And that, again, is a problem. You know, we go to, in my case, it was a trial, but it doesn't matter. When a ju- judge sentences someone the public, all of us believe it's 10 years, it's eight years, it's really only two-thirds, and they are out there. Mm-hmm. Here you go. Thanks for coming. There have been actually sentences, as you well know, Sherry, of uh, less than a week. Oh, absolutely. And that is what is so frustrating to me, is in the last nine years, there have only been three sentences. Mine was eight years. Uh, with a manslaughter charge attached to it at uh, the Lake Nivelle uh, and and also uh, the lady in Saskatchewan who killed a family of four. 
they're the only sentences that have been really over two and a half years. The average sentence for an impaired driving that causes death or deaths is about two and a half to three and a half years where they are out in, you know, one and a half to two and a half years. You have and thought. that's how it's treated in this country as a, a, an unfortunate accident. Yeah. You have fought so hard for so long for justice. I have. And you've been ignored. Um, I have. As, have other, as have other families. Do you have any yeah. hope? Do you have any well, hope that there will be proper I justice? I do have hope. I mean, the problem lies with our current government. I've been in Ottawa four times before the Senate, before the Justice Committees, and the, our current government has totally ignored me. And I've worked with such great uh, politicians like Michael Cooper, Rob Nicholson, Peter McKay. They all know, they all emphasize, they all are, are working for victims, too. And um, I, I hope, and I, and I have, I'm, I'm a glassful kind of person. When we get a new government, I really feel that they'll start taking justice issues a lot more seriously. Sherry, um, we're, we're going to have to hold everybody's feet to the fire oh, because this I will. is this this go. I know you will. I know you will. <laughs> we all have to be with you because this has gone on far too long, and more people will die. And the consequences for driving drunk and killing someone are abysmally, abysmally light. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for everything you do, Sherry. Thank you so much, Roy. And uh, t- take care of yourself and stay you home. Too. Yeah, stay home. That's right. Thanks, Sherry. Sherry Arsenault on The Roy Green Show. Yesterday, Sam Cooper joined us on the air. And if you heard it, it was about uh, about this time yesterday. Sam gave us a detailed accounting of China's manipulation of the world's supply of PPE and uh, acquiring 2.5 billion pieces of emergency medical protection in just six weeks. So, and then um, trying to sell back to countries that have provided them donations of PPE, trying to sell the, the, the equipment back to those countries. So lots of questions being asked, and the question that I need an answer to is this. Um, Can we trust China at all? At all, to be honest, and particularly when we get to the end of the the pandemic, um, will they participate in, in any way, in any meaningful manner, in any international investigation into what took place. Professor Gordon Holden joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He's the director of the China Institute at the University of uh, of Manitoba, has a great deal of experience with China, worked and lived in China for a period of time. Professor Holden, always good to talk to you. Thank you very much for the time. And uh, Sam Cooper's story on China manipulating the world's supply of PPE caught everybody's attention. (sighs) What do we make of that? Well, I think it should have got uh, gotten people's attention. I mean, it's uh, at a time when the world was helping China, uh, sending donations and providing inform- um, uh, information and assistance and, and moral support that um, we needed to um, be aware that, uh, and we weren't, that China was looting or grabbing great numbers of PPE uh, containers of equipment. Um, this, you know, in the face of our assistance to them. Now, it is true now that they are an absolutely essential supplier to us. We can't, we can't create a factory overnight. And they also have made some donations. But those initial missteps 
um, I think will damage for a long time confidence in Chinese actions. Did anything what we heard from Sam, and his report really is outstanding, did any of it surprise you? Not really. Perhaps the, well, yes and no. And the fact that China takes actions that serves its national interests above all other concerns, not the only country that does so, but certainly, that did not surprise me. But I thought that it was brazen to be shipping uh, PPE equipment out right under the noses of countries who, as it turned out, would need it very quickly. So, yes, look after your own self first, but that was... Uh, and that's understandable. If they had simply said, no, we can't send you any equipment right now, we need all of it in China, I get that. Uh, we would do the same, presumably. But taking equipment from others, uh, surreptitiously, at least not in the open, uh, that took my breath away, and I think that will be damaging to China um, over a period of time. That won't be forgotten. What should the world expect from China as far as cooperation with the rest of the world is concerned, and any eventual investigation or investigations into how the pandemic developed? Unfortunately, there can't be or probably won't be ability to know precisely how this went wrong, how it went south, um, without Chinese cooperation. They've got great scientists. They do. Uh, they don't always get a free reign. They can't always speak out. And some, when they do, get into trouble. Uh, but there's no doubt about their capacity. And they're graduating more graduates in science, engineering, and medicine five times as many each year as the United States. So uh, ignoring, them is, ignoring them isn't an option. I'm very worried that we won't get Chinese cooperation at all in an investigation in China. Unfortunately, the logical organization to do that would be the WHO. And in many people's eyes, the WHO is, is also part of the solution, but part of the problem as well. Uh, so I'm skeptical. But I think that Failing a good investigation, more information will leak out. Some has already. Um, uh, you have heard of seeing the uh, Five Eyes Intelligence Network Assessment. Yes. Uh, it comes to the conclusion that it more likely came from the Wuhan lab, although not on purpose, accidentally. We won't know the answer to that for a while yet, but we would get that answer much more swiftly if we had the Chinese on board. Yeah. Makes me very concerned about Canadian potential engagement with Huawei in development of this nation's 5G program, like Canada's 5G program, which the U.S. military is strongly urging Canada not to do. And in fact, our Canadian military as well, although Mr. Trudeau's government is holding off on announcing a decision. Do you share that concern? Well, I do. And we would need to be concerned that there would be no risk. I'm not a technical expert. I do know that depends on the agency, and the Canadian government is not unanimous on this. The Canadian military is wary, CSIS is wary, CSCE, which is the group that does uh, electronic surveillance and counter-surveillance for the federal government, they believe that there are workarounds. Uh, I'm not sure, but there needs to be confidence. I'm not in favor of trade boycotts and all those sorts of things, because I think they tend to be... Um, too easily replicated, and before you know it, free trade, it disappears, and we the ones who need it. But I would need to be convinced, and I guess the Canadians would need to be convinced that the risks are manageable. But we need a decision fairly quickly, because if we're going to go the route of saying no Huawei, the other producers, um, Ericsson and Nokia, um, are not nearly as large companies. They've got limited capacity, and they're quite busy as it is. 
um, without the decision, some of the telecoms are just sitting on the fence. One has got, decided to go ahead with Ericsson, right. I believe. But right. you know, so we need to, we need to get going on this, or we're going to be the only advanced country that doesn't have five G. I uh, always enjoy the opportunity to speak with you, Professor Holden, uh, and we'll call on you again. Thank you so much for today. Thank you Thanks. so much for this opportunity. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 